Well, I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. If you're using one of the Bibles that is provided for you here, you should find that on page 288. 288. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to be considering uh, the catechism on uh, the Lord's Prayer and specifically on the address in the Lord's Prayer, Our Father Who Is in Heaven. And I thought that uh, here in 1 Kings chapter 8, uh, we find a lot of instruction on prayer uh, from Solomon. Uh, Solomon at this point had built the temple, uh, the place where God would dwell amongst his people. And here, as he dedicates the temple, Solomon again provides us with, with great instruction on prayer and what our prayer is to look like, even as we are to pray to our Father who is in heaven. So 1 Kings chapter 8, we'll read verses 12 through 30. This is the holy and inspired word of God. Then Solomon said, The Lord, Yahweh, has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. That's referring to the temple. Verse 14. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who, is with, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people. Now it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David my father, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son, who shall be born to you, shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David my father, and sit on the throne of Israel, as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord, that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt." Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on the earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David my father what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your son pays close attention to their way, to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven... And the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord, my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be opened night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there. 
that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. So far from God's holy word. I'm going to turn now to the catechism, uh, Lord's Day 46, which you'll find in the back of the hymnal we sang from. Lord's Day 46 on page 894. There are two questions there. I'll read the question and we'll respond together with the answers. So question 120. Why has Christ commanded us to address God as our Father? To awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer, which should be basic to our prayer, a childlike reverence and trust that through Christ God has become our Father and will much less refuse to give us what we ask in faith than will our parents refuse us the things of this life. Question 121. Why the words, who is in heaven? These words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly way and to expect from his almighty power everything needed for body and soul. So far from the catechism. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, last week we had begun an introduction to prayer in the Christian life, and we had said that prayer is the highest expression of thanksgiving that we can offer to God, right? The Christian life, in terms of our obedience and what we are to do in response to God's deliverance, is one of gratitude, right? We're fueled not by guilt, but by gratitude to obey the Lord's commandments as his people. And the highest expression of our gratitude is prayer. And last week we had also said that the reason that prayer is so significant for us is because of our context. We had said that we are a people who have been delivered from sin and misery but are a people who have not yet arrived in our heavenly home to be with the Lord forever and ever. We are a pilgrim people on the way, a wilderness community. And in the midst of this wilderness, as we saw from Hebrews chapter 4 last week, God invites us to come before his throne of grace that we might find mercy and grace to help in time of need. And so last week the sermon had been entitled, which I think I forgot to even make reference to, but last week the sermon was titled, The Heart in Pilgrimage. And that phrase had come from a poem that this early, around 1600s, Calvinist um, uh, pastor named George Herbert had coined in his own poem called Prayer. And in this poem, Prayer, George Herbert just strings together these various metaphors and um, pictures of what prayer is. And so last week we had used one of those metaphors, the heart in pilgrimage. That's what prayer is. Well, this week, if you look at the sermon title, I took another uh, metaphor from George Herbert's poem. And here he speaks of prayer as reversed thunder. Interesting phrase, reversed thunder. In what sense can we speak of prayer as reversed thunder? Well, what is thunder? Think about in the Old Testament, right? 
when God in the heavens speaks to his people, audibly they hear a booming voice. They hear him thundering. Think of Sinai, right? The Lord speaking in heaven and that voice booming on the earth. Well, prayer is reversed thunder, right? Whereas thunder originates in the heavens and is heard on the earth, so prayer originates on the earth and booms before our Heavenly Father. Prayer is something that I think we can often think about it as a kind of whisper. And at times it is, right? Sometimes our prayers feel very much they're coming from a position of, of weakness. And, and often maybe it's hard for us to pray, pray and it's hard for us to utter words before God. And we can often have this picture of prayer as this kind of faint whisper that barely makes it up to our Father's ears in heaven. But prayer is reversed thunder. Your prayer, as weak as it may come from you, right? As small as you may feel in prayer, it is heard before your Father as loud as thunder in the heavens. Your Father hears your prayer as it comes from this earth and it goes up into the heavens. And I think that's a helpful picture for us to think about Solomon as he dedicates the temple and gives us some instruction about prayer. And also how that connects to the Lord's Prayer and the preface to it. Our Father in heaven. Right? When we begin to address our Father in heaven, it is as if our prayer thunders in the heavens, booms in the heavens, that our Father hears us. And of course, he delights to hear from us as well. And so first, I want us to just to focus on uh, Solomon, what we can learn from Solomon's dedication. And then we'll turn to the catechism to see how that helps to flesh out further uh, what we learn in 1 Kings chapter 8 from Solomon as well. So we don't have a ton of time, of course, in this first service. Uh, if you have some questions afterwards, of course, feel free to ask them uh, or just to engage the sermon. I know Eddie Urban is, is, is uh, the king of that after the sermon's coming up, talking about it. I know I love that. I know Pastor Paul loves that. And so we love to just engage in dialogue about these things because we, we can't say everything. Uh, but let's turn now uh, to think about what Solomon teaches us in uh, the uh, dedication of the temple. And the first thing for us to notice and, and to think about is um, the significance of this event, the significance of the temple in the Old Testament. Now, a lot could be said about this, but the temple, as Solomon refers to it, is the house of God, right? And a house is a place, just as the children here, I'm sure, are familiar with, right? A house is, is where you live. It's where you dwell. It's where you go and you sleep and you eat, right? And so when Solomon speaks of the temple built in the Old Testament as a house of the Lord, he's speaking it of it as the place where God, the God of heaven, would come in the midst of his people and dwell with them. God took up residence amongst his people. He had an address that you could look to and say, this is where the Lord is among his people. And so in many ways, the temple then was created as a kind of replica of God's heavenly dwelling. We see this, for instance, in the fact that the Holy of Holies, right, the centerpiece of the temple, was built as a perfect cube. You might say, well, that's kind of interesting. Why does the author want us to know the dimensions of the Holy of Holies? Why is it a perfect cube? One might ask a further question. Where else do you find a perfect cube in the Bible? The very ending 
in Revelation chapter 21-22. As the angel measures the city of God where he will dwell with his people, it too is a perfect cube. The new, he- the new heavens coming down. The new Jerusalem coming down is a perfect cube. So the temple in the Old Testament was always meant to be a kind of replica, a shadow of God's heavenly dwelling. We see this uh, very explicitly in Hebrews chapter 9. If you want to turn there with me, I'm more simply just listen. Hebrews chapter 9, we begin to see something of... Uh, the shadowy form of the temple. So there in Hebrews chapter 9, begin reading there, uh, he goes on to speak about the temple. We won't read all of those verses for the sake of uh, some time here. But if you jump down to verse 11, after he spoke about the earthly temple, he says this, verse 11, He says, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of the creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And then if you jump down to verse 23, it says there that it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, speaking of the earthly temple, as a copy of the heavenly things. But the heavenly things themselves with a better sacrifice than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Now, a lot more could be said about this, but the basic idea that the author of the letter to the Hebrews wants us to see is that when Solomon dedicates the temple in the Old Testament... And he says that this is the place of God's dwelling among his people. He is saying that the temple was a shadow, a a copy of the heavenly reality where God truly dwells. And therefore, the temple served a temporary purpose. It's why there is no temple today. Christ has not appeared into an earthly temple, but he has gone into the heavens, the true temple, the true tabernacle of God. And so when Solomon then dedicates this temple... He is directing us ultimately to heaven itself. And Christ lifts our eyes up there so that when we pray before God, our prayer is to go to the dwelling place of God in heaven, our Father who is in heaven. And it's there, as our prayers are directed there toward heaven, that God hears us, even as Solomon had mentioned. Notice at the end of Solomon's words, In verse 30, also going back to verse 29, he says, And praying that your eyes, speaking to God, may open night and day toward this house, the place which you have said, My name shall dwell there, that they may listen to your prayer, that your servant offers toward this place, and listen to the plea of your servant, of your people Israel, when they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place, 
and when you hear, forgive. And so we see examples of this throughout the scriptures. One of the most um, noticeable and the most memorable is Daniel. Right? Think about Daniel and the various trials that he had gone through. And often when Daniel was in the midst of a trial where he was, his life was on the line, Nebuchadnezzar about to put him and the other wise men to death, his prayer is specifically said to be directed toward Jerusalem. Though he's in captive, he's a captive in Babylon, right? His prayer is toward Jerusalem where God had placed his name. When Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 is aware of the sins of his people, he intercedes on their behalf and it says that again, his eyes are directed to Jerusalem, the place where the temple was. Now today, as God's people, our prayer, we don't face Jerusalem. The temple is no longer active. The temple is no longer something that God's people utilize on earth because Christ, the great high priest, has gone into heaven. And it's for that reason that our prayers are to be directed to our Father there in heaven. It's where Christ is. It's where our high priest is. It's where he represents us and bears our name. Our prayers go before our God in heaven. And we know that he accepts our prayers even, as we said last week, even as he accepts the Lord Jesus Christ. Our confidence that our prayers are heard, that they thunder in heaven, is that Christ is there interceding for us. Christ is there who is our mediator. And we can have full confidence then that our prayers come before our God as loud booms which he hears and answers. Much more can be said, but let's now think about how the catechism then opens up in light of this, the Lord's Prayer, when it says, Our Father who is in heaven. We'll just take those two phrases uh, separately. So first then, when Jesus instructs us to pray, he says we are to address God as our Father. We had said earlier from the catechism and of course from God's word that in Christ we have been adopted as God's children. That in Christ, by his grace, we are now the children of God, sons of God, filled with the the spirit of his son, as Galatians 4 teaches us. And therefore, on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for us, and on the basis of who we are in Jesus Christ, we now can address God in in the most miraculous, marvelous reality. We can address God himself, the creator of heaven and earth, as our Father, one who is a good Father. Now, I know some of us did not have a good Father growing up. Some of us have had very difficult homes. But the Lord presents himself as a good Father, one who even a good Father on earth may ask for a fish or for food, right? A good Father is not going to give him a stone. He's going to give him food to eat. How much more? Your heavenly Father, Jesus tells us. How much more your heavenly Father who cares for you? Right? Your Father clothes the lilies of the field. Your Father feeds the birds, the pigeons you see walking around New York City. He feeds them every day. How much more does your Father care for you? How much more will your Father clothe you, feed you, provide for you? He does so every single day. And so as we come before God in prayer... Yes, we recognize his majesty, as we're going to see. Yes, we recognize that he is holy. But at the bottom of our prayer, right, at the, the heartfelt the longing of our prayer, where, it, where it, it springs from is a recognition that God is our 
Father in Christ. Notice what the Catechism says as it opens up God's Word on this. The reason it says that we're to address God as Father is to awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer, right? So again, that which, from which our prayer is to spring from, the motive of our prayer, as I come before God, as I approach Him, my posture in prayer, right? It's to awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer what should be basic to our prayer. Namely, a childlike reverence and trust before our Father. A childlike reverence and trust. I know the children here, maybe, uh, I can think of maybe Owen and Paul, right? This kind of childlike awe and trust of your, of your dad, right? Maybe there's something really heavy in the house. Maybe there's like a, a, something, a big box, and you go to lift it up, but you can't do it because you're not strong enough, right? But maybe dad comes along, right? And dad, with all of his might and strength, right, he can pick up that heavy box that was so difficult for you, right? You look at your dad like a Superman, right? You look at your dad, and we all have had this view of our parents maybe growing up, of how strong dad is and how wise he is and how he cares for me. It's the same kind of, as it says here, childlike awe that we have before our father, maker of heaven and earth. We know his strength. We know his power. The one who upholds all things, the one who governs all things, the one who has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. This is our heavenly Father. And so when we approach him, we approach him with this childlike awe of his power and his love for us, trusting that he cares for us, trusting that he knows us. And again, this is at the heart, this is basic to our prayer when we say, Our Father, childlike awe and trust. And he goes on to add, that we are to have this through Christ God, or rather through Christ, God has become our Father and will much less refuse to give us what we ask in faith than will our parents refuse us the things of this life. Right? We've kind of already opened that idea up. But this idea of childlike awe and trust, do you have that before your Father in heaven? It's something for us to meditate upon and be conscious of and it's to be basic to our prayer. And so we address God as our Father in Christ with childlike awe and trust. And the second phrase, right, we address our Father who is in heaven. Now again, why does Jesus give us a kind of location toward which, again, our prayers are to be directed? Our Father who is in heaven, right? You can simply just skip over that. Our Father, hallowed be your name. But he adds very intentionally, who is in heaven, and again, we saw something of this already in Solomon's dedication of the temple. Our prayers are directed to the house of God where he dwells. Right? Our prayers are directed to the house of our Father who dwells not on earth. We don't look and are not required to bow down and look to a specific location on earth. But our, our prayers are directed to our Father in heaven where Christ has gone. The Catechism adds this. He says, These words who is in heaven teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly way. Right? So neg- it gives a negative statement first. Right? The reason why we're to pray to God in heaven, the reason Solomon instructed uh, the people of God to pray toward God in heaven, and as did Jesus, is that we might not pray to God and think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly way. 
John Calvin kind of fleshed this out when he said that we're not to have any earthly thoughts of God, not to measure him by our apprehension, nor to subject him to our will, but to adore his glorious majesty in humility, right? When we come before our God, we're not to impose upon him the limits of other people, right? Our own limits, limits of our parents, limits of whatever else we might have, as if God is limited, but rather we are to think of his majesty in a, he- in a heavenly way, not an earthly way. And also, not only are we not to impose limits upon God, but as we pray before him, we're also then not to impose our wills upon God, but as we're going to see in the catechism, that God's will would be done. That we would submit ourselves, humble ourselves to the one who is above us, one who is not equal, but one who is over us, one who stands above us in heaven. And so we're not to pray and think of God's majesty in an earthly way, negatively, but rather positively, We are to expect from his almighty power everything needed for body and soul. Body and soul. Right? The catechism begins by reminding us of our comfort. That you belong to Jesus Christ in life and in death, but also body and soul. The whole of you belongs to Jesus Christ. And and again, as the theme of comfort is brought through this catechism and into prayer... We're reminded that as we come before our God in heaven, we are to pray not only for spiritual things, but also not only for physical things as well. We mentioned this last week also. Our prayers often can become simply just prayers for physical things. Lord, heal so-and-so. Lord, heal this. Lord, provide for this. And again, the Lord loves to hear those prayers. But again, there is a spiritual priority in many ways uh, to the prayers of Paul. Though Paul himself also prayed for Uh, money to be provided for the church plants that are taking place, and he prayed that that the people of God would would know uh, bodily uh, um, healing and and so on, right? So Paul wasn't opposed to those things, but again, our prayers also also should have a spiritual component to it. We are to pray for whatever is needed for body and soul, because it is the one in heaven who can provide those things, and only the one who can provide those things ultimately uh, for us. And so prayer is the privilege of the children of God. And as we're going to see in later weeks as we open up the various requests in the Lord's Prayer, it's this basic posture that is to govern all of those requests. We come before our Father in heaven with childlike awe and childlike trust as his children adopted in Jesus Christ. Much more can be said, but we'll flesh that out in future weeks. But again, as we go out into a new week and we pray before our God, go before him as your father with childlike awe and trust. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, uh, we come before you as your children, uh, thankful for the instruction that your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, gave us in the Lord's Prayer. Father, help us then uh, to know you uh, more and more as our Father, who withholds no good things from your children. You did not spare your own Son. How will you not also then with him not graciously give us all things? And, And so, Father, help us then with childlike awe and trust to look to your almighty power for all that we need for body and soul, and keep us ever dependent upon you, Uh, It's so easy for us to 
think that we have everything under control, to think that we have no needs or no weakness, and yet, Lord, uh, we do. And so, Father, may you be near to us, and may our eyes be directed toward you in heaven, where Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.